Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. No, I never really got into, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Tettenhall Wood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sports men and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional cricketer. He played 105 test matches for Australia, as well as being the head coach of them. Welcome to the podcast, Justin Langer. Hello, guys. Thanks for the invitation. My friend Steve War was on the your podcast a little while ago and he told me it's the best podcast in the whole world so because of that i'm very honored that you've invited me on to speak brilliant and it's a pleasure to have you yes we've had steve on he was just before the ashes in in the in the summer which was really good and we've also had your good friend matthew hayden yeah well done yeah mason we liked to start or podcasts with some random precedents before we start talking about your career, are you ready? Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Well, last weekend, I went to Coldplay. They had two concerts here in Perth, and I got to meet Chris Martin. Wow. And so oh, now he's my famous phone, and I, he actually, and I'll send it to you, Mason, to have a look at, Last week in the pod in the during the Coldplay concert, he sang a song about Western Australia where I live, and he's used my name. So <laughs> you guys, I'll send you, I'll send you the video to show you, and that would be one of the most famous people in my in my black book at the moment. So next time he comes, you have to go on stage and sing it with him. Ah, uh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'd be a bit too shy to do that, but it was a. <laughs> Coldplay concert was absolutely unbelievable. I was lucky to go to both nights here at Optus Stadium in Perth. It was the great entertainment, the greatest entertainment I've ever seen. It was brilliant. Okay. If you could trade lives with anyone for one day and one day only, who would it be and why? If I could trade lives with one person, I would say it would be, gee whiz, good question. Um, It would be... The famous surfer Kelly Slater. And I've never surfed, but I live in Perth and I live right near the beach. And I've always wanted to be a, learn how to surf. My old opening partner, Maddie Hayden, loves surfing. 
My my daughter's boyfriends love surfing, but I've never been able to. But if I could do a change place for one, that'd be Kelly Slater, the great world champion surfer. If you could have any superpower, what would you have and why? If I could have any superpower, I would be able to become invisible. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's, so that's a good see me. That would be my superpower if I had a choice. Think of all the, the conversations you could hear and all the places you could sneak into. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we want to take your back to the beginning, a talk about your childhood. What okay. are you your memories if growing up? And did you always want to be a cricketer? Well, yes, I, I, I grew up in Western Australia in a, a place called Perth. And my uncle Robbie played World Series cricket for Australia. And I remember he used to come home and tell us all these stories about, I was only seven years old when my uncle Robbie told me these stories about World Series cricket. And I used to hear about people like Viv Richards, who was the great West Indian, they used to call him the master blaster Mason. He was like a big West Indian and he was my hero. And I used to hear all these amazing stories about Viv Richards. And then I used to watch the TV and watch all these amazing cricketers play. And then in, when I was 11 years old, there was another legend called Dennis Lilly. He was a fast bowler for Australia. I was 11 years old. And over here, we had the Boxing Day Test Match at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And when I was 11, the last ball of the day, Dennis Lilly ran into bowl and he bowled Viv Richards on the last ball of the day. And all the Australian cricket, there was about 90,000 people going crazy in the grandstand. All the Australians were walking off and I had a thing called a baggy green cap, which is the cat. You can see that in my office here. If you look up on the screen, Very nice. see up on the shelf, that's a baggy, baggy green cap. And I thought when I was 11 years old, imagine if I could have one of those one day, all because Dennis Silly bowled Viv Richards. So I think growing up, I always dreamed about it. I had two brothers and a little sister, and we always played cricket in the backyard and down on the beach. I always played it within, you know, in club cricket with my little teammates. So I think I always did want to play cricket from a young age, mainly because I love watching it on the television. And I had lots of heroes that I aspired to be like. You start your career at Western Australia. What are your memories from your first season as a professional cricketer? Well, a couple of things I remember. First, I only found out the night before that I was going to make my debut for Western Australia because someone got injured. Jeff Marsh, who's the father of Mitchell Marsh, who just did very well in the World Cup for Australia, and Sean Marsh, who also played for Australia. His dad was a very good cricketer. He not only played for Australia, but he was also the coach of Australia at one point. But he got injured. He hurt his shoulder. And I got asked to um, come and replace him the next day at the Wacker, which is in Perth. And there's a guy with the name of Merv Hughes, Murphy's had this big moustache and he had big, big round tummy and he used to bowl fast and he used to get really grumpy, Mason. You should have seen how angry he used to get. 
And he used to, he was running in and bowling bouncers and he was hitting me on the helmet, hitting me on the shoulders and telling me I was ba 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 like all fast bowlers talking absolute rubbish. Um, and that's what I remember about that debut test. And then what I remember is the day after I made my debut and it was the first time I got paid to play cricket, I went to the shop and I bought myself a new watch. And I love that watch. And even my daughter now, who's 27, I gave it to her as a gift. And she wears that watch even today as to every day to work. So I remember facing the fast bowlers. I remember being surprised to get selected. And then I remember with my first paycheck as a professional cricketer, I bought this watch, which I loved and my daughter still wears today. Amazing. Well, and speaking of debuts, your Australian debut was was eventful as well. So facing West Indies, you came in at one one for one and faced Ian Bishop. Can you tell us about your, your very first ball in, in Test cricket? Well, the first thing I'll tell you, the very first ball in Test cricket, I must have told the story in, um, in front of big audiences about oh, at least 500 times. <laughs> And what happened, my first ball, Mason, there's a guy by the name of Ian Bishop. And Ian Bishop was about a six foot ten bowler. And he was from Trinidad. And he bowled very, very, very fast. It was scary. And my first ball in Test cricket, you know what happened? I took my eye off the ball and I got hit straight in the back of the helmet. And I had blood pouring out of the back of my head and there was... All the West Indies come and looked after me, and I was—it was like a boxer who'd been knocked out, and I got the jelly legs. But back in those days, he didn't talk about concussion or anything like that. So I kept batting, and I end up getting twenty runs in the first innings, and in the second innings, I come into bat three as well, and I got out for fifty-four. I was the second last batsman out, and we lost by one run. <laughs> and our great captain Alan Border who achieved everything in the game of cricket, except he never beat West Indies. And after we lost that test match, it was another thing. Alan Border, who did everything in the game, the one thing he didn't beat the West Indies. And I felt really disappointed that we fell one run short in losing that first test. And I We watched the, the clips yesterday in, in preparation for, for chatting to you. And we... Um... Well, it's a bit before your time, Mason, but David Boone is at the other end, wasn't he? I imagine he wasn't wasn't very helpful, was he? It was so funny because what happened? Well, this is what happened. First, Ian Bishop was running. His run-up was so long, it was almost came from the sight screen. And he was running in like a sane bolt. And then standing right close to him was a guy called Desmond Haynes from Barbados. And before I faced the ball, Desmond Haynes was saying... Hey, Bishy, he's scared, Bishy, he's scared, Bishy, he's scared, Bishy. And then another guy sitting, I was close to me, Mason, you imagine that you're me. And Chris is another guy called Keith Arthur, and he was standing that close here. And he was looking at Ian Bishop going, kill him, Bishy, kill him, Bishy, kill him, Bishy. <laughs> There's a guy by the name of Brian Lara who was standing at the other side screen at the other. That's how far back, how fast he was bowling. Brian Lara was going... Hey, Bishy, boy should be in high school, not playing test cricket. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And so I haven't even faced the ball. And then what happened? First ball bouncer hits me, boom, hits me in the back of the head. And all of a sudden, a guy called David Boone, who was very tough, he walks down 
and he had a big moustache and he used to smoke cigarettes and and chew um chewing gum and he put his arm around me and he goes hey jl there's no heroes in test cricket son retire hurt and i said oh mr boone what do you mean retire hurt i've got my mum and my dad have flown over from perth to adelaide i got my brothers and my sister i've got my friend nigel ray from london's flowing over to watch me bat i've got the commentators up in the grandstand desmond haynes thinks i'm scared keith arthurton wants to kill me brian lara thinks i should be in high school i said mr boone if you don't mind We'll get through tonight. He said, remember, there's no heroes in Test cricket, son. Next morning, third ball. If you don't believe me, Mason, look it up on the internet tonight or today. Third ball of day two, 1992, Australia versus West Indies. David Boone's batting and I'm still batting with him. A bloke by the name of Kirtley Ambrose from Antigua runs into bowl. Let's go over this ball. Hits the pitch, pops up, and hits David Boone right on the end of the elbow. This hurts. Like, you get hit on the ball, on the end of the elbow by a hard cricket ball at 140 kilometres an hour. Hits him on the end of the elbow, and David Boone's gone down, holding his arm. But, Mason, yeah, not only am I tough and talented, I'm also an opportunist. Do you know what I did? I put my collar up like this, walked down, put my arm around David Boone, and I said, hey, Mr. Boone, no heroes in test cricket, son. Retire hurt. And he looked at me with these puppy dog eyes. He said, I think you're right, son, and he did. He walked off the ground and retired hurt, and that was my first ball in test cricket. Well, that's a very eventful first first ball and first few overs. So, um, it was. always a good good story. But good story. What does getting your first baggy green cap mean to you? Oh, hang on! I'm even going to show it to you. One sec. See, to most people, this is just a little piece of cloth, and it probably only costs about I don't know twenty dollars to ten quid, twenty quid to put together it's just a piece of cloth but to me that's what all I dreamed about I dreamed it when before the great late great Shane Warne a good friend of mine he died his baggy green cap one of the banks over here bought it for one million dollars five hundred thousand pounds that's how much it means to people in Australia so the best thing about this baggy green was no longer was it a baggy green or the baggy green now it's my baggy green and no one can ever take it off me. And this is the, one of the first ones I got. It's brand new. But the one I had that I used for for 100 test match, you should see it, Mason. It smells horrible. It's sweaty and it's dusty and it's had beer poured all over it and it's had all sorts of stuff. It's been to all the different parts of the world. I wore it for 100 tests. It's got blood on it. But I've got that in my another room in my house and it's in a frame. So I keep that in a frame so that no one can go near that. But the baggy green cap, it's only a piece of cloth, but it's a great symbol and it's something that I'm very proud to have one of. How important is luck in your career? And can you think of a time where you've been, where you have been lucky? 
Oh, luck's so important. Let me give you an example. In 2001, I was opened the batting for the first time when I was 31 years old. I got dropped for the Ashes tour and I got dropped for the first test match. I'm 31. I thought that's the end of my career. I'll never play for again, Australia again. Anyway, I've been training really hard and I finally, in the fifth test at the Oval in London, where's, where do you guys live? Uh, Wolverhampton, so Birmingham, Edgebaston, not far from there. And Birmingham, okay. So we were down at London in Surrey and Michael Slater got dropped for the for the test match. I went to open the batting with my best mate, Maddie Hayden, for the first time. So we walk out to bat. I think this is my last opportunity to play for Australia. I've never opened before. And I walk out, I'm all relaxed, I'm happy. Anyway, when I was on seven runs... A guy named Andy Caddick, who played for England. I played with him at Somerset. He's my friend now. I used to think he was, I used to didn't like him when I played against him either. He was a clown. He used to talk so much rubbish, but he's become a great friend of mine now. Anyway, when I was on seven, he bowled me a short ball and I pulled it as hard as I could. And my other friend, Mark Ramprakash, who I played with at Middlesex, he was at bat pad and he took this spectacular catch throws it up in there, I'm walking off the ground. So I'm only on seven, so that's the end of my career. I'll never play cricket for Australia again. I get a quarter of the way off the ground and Matty Hayden's going, Jail, come back, come back. I'm looking around, what's gone on? No ball. <laughs> it was a no ball. Andy Caddick bowled a no ball. And guess what? I got 100. Wow. Luck. I would never, if I were out for seven, I'd never played. And then what happened? We come back to Australia and they're thinking, oh, we better give him one more chance because he got 100 in against England. We're playing New Zealand at the Gabba, which is in Queensland. A guy by the name of um, Chris Cairns, who passed away also recently, bowled the very first ball of the first test of the summer, bowled a big in-swinger, hit me straight on the front pad, big appeal for LBW. The umpire gave me not out. It was plum. <laughs> Guess what happened next? I got another. <laughs> then we go to the third, the second test. We're in Brisbane, and Chris Cairns bowled a ball, and I cut one, and it was the easiest catch. It went like this: the easiest catch you've ever seen to a guy called Mark Richardson. I was on five at point. Guess what happened? Got he dropped. He dropped a sitter. <laughs> Guess what happened next? I got another hundred. The point is you need luck, Mason. You need luck in this game. You've got to work hard. I believe two things, and you've heard this, probably heard it before, the harder the harder you work, oh. the luckier you get. True. But I also believe the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. You don't give up opportunities. So, yeah, luck's important. There's no doubt about that. You were known for your batting, but... I want to ask you about the time you played against 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 India in two thousand and one, and you bowled <laughs> you only other in in Test cricket. How dis how desperate? Less desperate way Australia at the time to throw your the ball ball. <laughs> Mason, I've never seen you bowl. But I think you're a much better bowler than me. <laughs> That's my guess. And I haven't even seen you bowl before, but I think you would be a better bowler than me. 
I actually, this mouse next to my computer is probably a better bowler than me as well. <laughs> so the very fact that Steve Waugh threw me the ball and I bowled one over, we were desperate. We were absolutely dead. And what happened, we were playing against the uh, India at Eden Gardens in Calcutta. There was 110,000 people there watching. No pressure. <laughs> on day three, we'd made India follow on and we had Sachin Tendulkar out. India were four down. We were about to win our 17th straight test match. We were about to beat India for the first time in 60 years. We we're about to have a biggest party of our life. Day four comes. Raul Dravid and VVS Laxman batted all day. We could not get them out. And everyone bowled. I reckon even the umpire got a bowl before <laughs> me. But Steve Waugh got so desperate. And you weren't there, Mason, so he couldn't throw you the ball because I'm sure you're a good bowler. He threw me the ball and I got none for three. Three singles. And I, but at least I can proudly say I've bowled one over in Test cricket. A lot of people haven't done that. What were you? What were you throwing down? Some medium paces. Calling it medium pace is being <laughs> very right. There's like we call it that we think have a thing in cricket called a pie thrower. A pie <laughs> thrower is the worst bowler in the world. So you could call it medium pace, but I'd call it more of a pie. It was rubbish, and I didn't get a wicket. But having said that, I did get a few first-class wickets, including the greatest all-rounder of our time, um, Jack Callis. I got him out, LBW, at the Gabba one day. Our bowlers all got injured in the – I think Adam Gilchrist was the captain. He threw me the ball, and I got Jack Callis, LBW. So mm, it's not too bad. You made your first Ashes appearance. Appearance in 1998. Can you tell us what makes an Ashes series so special and different from other Test matches? Yes, I think there's great rivalry. Even when I was a little kid, Mason, when I was a little boy, I used to watch on my black and white TV and watch it. We used to be able to get up and have a hot chocolate and watch the Australia versus England in the Ashes even when we were little kids back here in Australia. So there's great history, there's great rivalry. And the, when I was played my first Ashes Test match, was more special than any Test match I've ever played. And I think that'll continue. We saw that last summer. It was an amazing Test series. And Ashes cricket is just, just I think it's the rivalry and the history and the bragging rights. The bragging rights for Aussies to say we've got the Ashes or England to say they've got the Ashes. That's what makes it so much fun and so competitive. And just in growing up, so I grew up in the 90s and, and cricket was my, my first kind of love of sport is, is cricket. I love cricket. I play a lot myself. And growing up and watching that team of yourself, Steve, Mark Waugh, Shane Warne, Ponton, Ian Healy, Hayden, Warne, Lee, you could go on for ages. What was that like to kind of be in that team of, of arguably the greatest Australian team ever. It was unbelievable. The reason it was so much, there's an old saying, winners have parties, losers have meetings. And when you play with those guys, you have a lot of parties and, and that just makes it so much fun. It was, And the really interesting thing for me was that 
It was so competitive to get into the team. And there's always someone barking at your heels to take your place. So on the field, you know, you had to take it very seriously. You always had to look at ways to get better. If you didn't perform all the time, someone else would take your spot because there was so much competition. I think that's what drove the standard so high. And the other thing is, I was only asked this the other day, what it was about playing in that team. Every time we walked out to play, we expected to win. And there's there's real power in that. So you you know you feel it in your body language, you feel it in yourself that even though you get nervous, you're expecting to win because you've got so many great players. And the other thing about it all is they are like my brothers now. I spent more time with them for most of my adult life than I did with my actual brothers and sister <laughs> and family. So they're like my brothers. We keep in touch a lot. Um, I love them all. They're they're ripping blokes. And um, on the field, we had a lot of fun. And off the field, we had a lot of fun together as well. And then continuing with the Ashes, I want to take the the Boxing Day Test match in 2002. You scored 250. Was that the greatest innings you've had? And if it wasn't, what was? Well, you see up there, up, up on top, I think you can see up on top of the bookshelf. Yep. There's actually, when I'm walking off the ground, I think Alex Tudor... Alec Tudor from um, Surrey's running past, and I just walked off. It's a full crowd. I scored 250. So the thing I remember most of oh, there's two things I remember most about that innings. First, when I was on 96 or 94, I hit a six to bring up my 100. And it was the only time in my life, really, I knew something that no one else in the world knew. And I knew it was going, and there was real, so I hit the ball. I know it's going for six. But there's silence. As I hit it off the bat, I'm just sort of going, I know this is going, I know I'm going to be 100. But that two or three seconds where you're waiting for it to go across and the crowd the crowd roars, that was an amazing feeling. So I remember that. And then the other thing I remember about that test match was a great test. But at the end of the test, I was feeling pretty confident. So at the end of day two, I was feeling pretty confident and pretty happy with myself. I went to the press conference. And just before stumps, every time Brett Lee bowled, the Barmy Army were calling him for no ball. And they said he was throwing. He said they were questioning his action. So I went to the press conference and I'm talking about, you know, my innings. I got a bit confident. And they asked me about the Barmy Army. And I said something like, well, the Barmy Army, most of them are just 50 kilo overweight clowns who know nothing about cricket. Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. From the next day till every time I played, the Barmy Army used to sing a song about the seven dwarfs, and I was one of the dwarfs. They used to sing it every time I went about me being a dwarf. And then they sing a song called We're 50 kilos overweight, we're 40 kilos overweight, we're 30 kilos overweight, we're 20. Langer, you're a noble, so you're an idiot or something, whatever it was. And they used to sing it every single time. So what I learned is you never mess with the Barmy Army. You never <laughs> mess with the Barmy Army. That's the biggest lesson I learned from that innings. And I imagine you copped a lot of a lot of it from the Barmy Army over over your your time. Did you enjoy that, or did it kind of get to you, or no. did you enjoy it? No, I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> it's all funny. Like the the funny thing is, I love the music. I love the loyalty. I love the support. All that is brilliant. But when they're singing about you or when they're singing about your mates, and sometimes there's a bit of a sting to it, that's no fun. 
you know, people think it's funny, but and, and it is, it's great, it's great entertainment. But when you're the one on the, the target, or one of your mates is the target, then it's no fun, and it wears, wears you down, there's no doubt about that. PicturePath is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or a theatre, using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress and enjoy more activities. PicturePath. Download the app today. What is the difference between playing Ashes cricket in England compared to Australia? <laughs> that was nice and oh, That's easy. You know what that is? When you play in England, everyone hates you. When you play in Australia, everyone loves you. And when <laughs> England come over here, besides the army, army army, the shoes are on the other foot. So... There's a few little different things in the atmosphere and the ball moves around a bit more and different bounces. But in the end of the day, if Australia play in England, it's really tough. And if England come to Australia, it's really tough, mainly because of the crowds and the media and getting written off all the time. But that's all part of the game. Was there anything... So we spoke to a lot of English cricketers. Uh, we spoke to Nasser Hussain, Michael Atherton, Rob Key. Um, and a few others, and they they all said the same. When they went to Australia, there was like, extra like security would take their time checking the bags, and the hotel staff were would be rude to them, and little things like that. Was there anything you faced? Obviously, the media wouldn't have been very nice. But was there anything off the pitch in England that kind of happened that made your life extra difficult? Yeah, I had a stalker actually. Okay, I mean it's it's a really good story. We um, I think it was the. 1997 Ashes, and we're over, and we were up in, we were in um, Leeds, and you know the Leeds, is it the Leeds Rhinos? Yeah. It's the, is it the, there's a rugby ground out the back? Yeah. So at lunch or tea, I wasn't playing, I was 12th man, so I was out the back with the fitness trainer, I was running a lap, doing some boxing, running another lap, doing some boxing, and all there was about, I don't know, a big group of English supporters, probably from wherever and they're all drinking beer and they're sort of chirping me chirping me chirping me and they're going you know telling me how rubbish am i am and tell them i'm useless and telling me all this sort of stuff and it kept going on and, on. and eventually i just ran over there and the fitness trainer started chasing after me i'm going mate you're a coward you know you, you're in front of your mates and da, da, da. i was silly really at the time but you're a coward mate i don't know why you're carrying on he's going oh we're just having a laugh and i'm like yeah but mate da, da. anyway the fitness trainer grabbed hold of me we went back to the change room. We had a laugh about it. No stress. Anyway, the next test match, I'm in the nets practicing. And there's a bloke in that going, the coward's back. The coward's back. It was really weird. And then everywhere I went, he turned up. He turned up everywhere. And he did a Facebook, he did a Facebook, um, set up a Facebook account under my name. And he was you know, sending out all this abusive stuff. And it was really weird. Anyway, um, I was playing for Gil, I was playing for Somerset and we're playing at Guildford. 
And I've just scored 300. I think I've scored 330. So I'm feeling pretty happy with myself. I'm going back to Australia three days later to get ready for the last dashes series. And I'm just standing at first slip. And guess what? He turned up. Him and his three mates, and he bought the seven dwarfs, put them there in the temporary stand. He's, he's shouting abuse, shouting abuse, shouting abuse. Anyway, what happened next was fascinating. Our coach, Andy Hurry, ex-Royal Marine, and our fitness trainer, Darren Vaness, used to work on the doors up there north, big bodybuilder and tough, real tough. So I'm standing there, and all our players, I wonder what's going to happen next. Next thing we know, Sarge, Andy Hurry starts walking that way around the oval. Darren Vaness starts walking that way around the oval. And they sit behind the stalker and his three mates. And we're all going, what is going to happen now? Anyway, next thing you know, Sarge puts his arm around the stalker's neck. This is seven years I'm talking about. Seven years of stalker. Puts his arm around his, his shoulder and whispers in his ear. And he whispered for not 10 seconds. Not He whispered in his ear for about two minutes. Next thing, the stalker picks up his seven dwarfs and his three mates and left. I've never, ever heard from him ever again. And guess what happened next? That night, I signed for Somerset and played for the next three years. And we had an amazing run because of that loyalty and that if they're going to have my back, I have their back. So, you know, you used to get that. And I know England talk about the Australian crowds. We feel exactly the same. When... We came, I've just finished watching the David Beckham documentary. I found it intriguing. And I just finished watching the Robbie Williams documentary. I found it intriguing, right? But what when Steve Smith and David Warner came back after their ban from Sandpaper Gate, the abuse they received in England, I still can't believe it. It was actually, it was disgusting behaviour. So, you know, we all have our stories to tell. But in the end of the day, what I will say about playing cricket in England, I've got some of my greatest friends are in England. Well, I played county cricket for Middlesex for three years. I played three years for Somerset, three and a half years for Somerset. I played three or four Ashes series. I love England. I played club cricket in Dover. I played club cricket in London. I played club cricket um, in Scotland. I, I love England. So there's, I can say a hundred thousand million times more good things about England, I can say about the bad things. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, we're just going to move a little bit away from your career. Um, we've got a few a few random questions. Um, okay. Kind of a would you rather game for us, okay? Right. So, a night in or night out? A night in, definitely. A beach holiday or a city break? A beach holiday any day of the week. Would you rather talk to animals or speak every single language? I'd like I'd like to talk to animals actually. I, I love my dogs and they I just love to be able to talk and know what they're thinking sometimes. Would you rather explore space or explore the bottom of the ocean? Explore space. In and in Perth, in, in Western Australia, we have big, big sharks. I'm <laughs> now scared of sharks. <laughs> so I reckon I'd rather explore space than the bottom of the ocean. And would you rather go forward 200 years and see your future family or go back 200 years and meet your ancestors? I think I'd rather go forward 200 years and meet my family. Brilliant. Okay, right. So sticking with the ashes. And sorry, but we, we have to bring it up, being from England. 
2005 Ashes series. Yeah. So, in my opinion, and not just because England won, but in my opinion, it's the greatest Ashes series that I've seen. Um, just because of the drama, every game apart from the first one was could have gone either way. Um, the result didn't obviously go your way, but how do you look back on that Ashes series? Yeah, an amazing series. Even that first test you said that wasn't close. If you remember, the first session was the best session of cricket I ever played in my life. It was absolutely brilliant. I've never felt pressure like it. It was amazing. Um, but it was a great series. I also remember the next test, Glenn McGrath. I was standing almost as close to you are to Mason. Glenn McGrath stood on the cricket ball and did his ankle. I could not believe it. And it was almost like from that millisecond, things changed. So it was an unbelievable series. That was when uh, Andy Flintoff, who was probably in the top three bowlers I ever faced, he had a huge impact on the series. I love I, I love everything about Andrew Flintoff. I, I just love the way he plays the game. He was horrible to face because he always smiled at you. <laughs> when you're <laughs> facing fast bowling, you want to be grumpy and mean and so you can get in the fight. Andy Flintoff just always just smiled all the time. So he was but a brilliant cricketer and loved his spirit. Um, yeah, that was that was an amazing test series. So I agree with you. It was disappointing to lose it, but it was a great um, privilege to be a part of it. After the first test in 2005, Australia won. Why did you decide to go into the England changing room after the game to sing your team song and and you your great? Correct. Do you drink fat? You know, in life, you do some things that you probably look back on and go, that wasn't the greatest idea. <laughs> we were playing, you know, we're playing great cricket. When you win, you know, everyone gets pretty excited. So, yeah, looking back on it, it was probably wasn't a great thing. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll admit that. We'll put our, you know, you know there's always, um, you've got to have a degree of humility. There's no doubt about it. The great champions have humility um, and on that occasion, when you've had a few beers, you think it's a funny thing to do. And there wouldn't be one man or one woman, lady, actually, on this podcast, listen to the podcast, who hasn't done some silly things in their lives. And whilst it was fun at the time, yeah, it was probably silly looking back on it. Um, and then... Research. Mason, you've done your research here. Well done. Yeah, so all... Well, not all day yesterday, but yesterday we spent a lot of time looking at YouTube and old interviews and oh. yeah, so the, the students well, enjoyed in the research, which is good. Mason, can you please make sure you, when you speak to all your friends, I say thank you for being so well researched. And that's why this is such a great podcast. There we go. Join this one. So moving on to better times for you now, Justin. Then regained. So you then regained. You, you then regained the ashes a few years later, smashing England five five to zero. It is is that your favourite Ashes series, and if not, what was? Yeah, I think it was my favourite Ashes series. One because that really hurt when we lost in two thousand and five, and we almost made a commitment to each other that we were going to do whatever we could to win back the Ashes before we retired, and. And what happened at the end of that series, the great Shane Warne and the great Glenn McGrath uh, retired in Sydney. And I was lucky to retire on the same day as those three. So 
and to win at five nil. Not many, not many athletes in life, in any sport, get to go out with a fairy tale finish. And the three of us were really fortunate to go out with a fairy tale finish. We to play so well with our mates and to fight back after losing that tough series. It was nice to go out with a fairy tale ending. I would say. Definitely, I said, yeah, probably a five percent less less than that get to go out on top, don't they? So, no, I think that's good. actually, if, if for a second, if we get a little bit serious, that I think that's why so many athletes have a bit of a chip on their shoulder because they either get dropped or they get injured or they really finish the way they would love to finish. And yeah, you know, it's really sad because it's a tough business. I mean, professional sports is a tough business, but in my case, I was very, very fortunate. And then being a an opening batsman, you would have had lots of great battles with some great opening bowlers. And yesterday, when we were doing our research, we noticed one kept coming up, and that was Shoaib Akhtar, the fast bowler of Pakistan. What was it like yeah. facing, like you must have faced some incredible fast bowlers, and what was it like kind of maybe facing Shoaib Akhtar and, and some other top really fast bowlers? Well, when you face fast bowlers, I think one thing, you know you're alive. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're the adrenaline's pumping. You're nervous. Your feet, your toes are twiddling in the on the dirt. You're getting ready. But what I learned though is if you learn how to see, no matter how fast the ball away, if you saw the ball come out of their fingers and you learn that skill, if you see it come out of their fingers, it was almost like slow motion because our bodies become like a computer to batting. So the whole idea was to see it, the ball released out of the fingers. Then you get into position. You move into good areas. But when you didn't, you weren't concentrating, you didn't see it. The figure. It was like being in a fast forward cartoon, right? And you got hit on the body or worse, you got out. So the, the whole idea was to see the ball out of the bowler's hand. Um, but it was awesome. I mean, it was scary. And anyone who tells you it wasn't scary is lying straight up. There was, you know, degrees of fear there about getting hit, but that kept you sharp and that kept you on your toes. And looking back on it, I miss it so much. Do you still play cricket at all? No, I don't. I don't. But I miss the contest. I miss the fight. I miss the adrenaline of facing fast bowling. I'm sure there's not, not even a in club my, cricket in Australia. No, I don't play anymore. I'm too old. I'm 53 now. But but I um in my hundredth test match before that last Ashes series, I got hit really badly in the back of the helmet. And uh, it was my first ball, first ball of the test match in Johannesburg in South Africa. I got hit in the, and I was concussed. I was knocked out and didn't play any more part in the game. So after that point, it took a lot to get back on the horse, as they say. It was scary. Every time I faced a fast bowler, there was a degree of a much larger degree of fear there. So I had to learn how to cope with that. And that was all part of mental mental conditioning and mental toughness again and mainly learning how to watch the ball closely again and again when we were doing our research a stat that surprised me because i just presumed to be a lot more is is you played eight one day internationals um yeah. we had to look a few times on different websites because I, I just presumed you played loads more than that so do you, why do you think you didn't play as many one day internationals as maybe you should have or yeah, I think it's so much about timing in this. Like when I was Mark Waugh and uh, Adam Gilchrist, they were the opening batters for Australia. And then you had Ricky Ponting. And and then after that, Matty Hayden got in with um, Adam Gilchrist. And it just, there was just, honestly, there was just wasn't a position. 
I had a really good record in domestic cricket, county cricket, chef uh, in for WA. I had really good record in one day cricket. Loved one day cricket, but it was just about opportunity. I, and you know, it was hard to take, but it, it is what it is. And um, you know, because I didn't play the many one day internationals, it meant I got to play a lot of county cricket. And I loved playing county cricket. You know, I it was a bit. Of, it was almost addictive to me at county cricket because you play so much. And it was, oh, I just loved it. I loved everything about playing county cricket. Do you still hold the record for the most first-class runs? Yeah, I do, yeah. Very. So that's a great honour. And I always joke, though, because in my last season playing for Somerset, I went past Sir Donald Bradman, but I joked to people. It took, him, it took me about 2,000 innings. It took him about 200 innings to make <laughs> 28,000 runs or whatever. So... Um, there's certainly here. I've got a beautiful in my office here. I've got a beautiful letter that I received from Sir Donald Bradman, and uh, I wrote him a letter in 1995. And what was most amazing was I got a reply the very next day. So if in my office you can maybe see up there, there's another baggy green cap, and under yeah. that baggy green cap, yeah, there's. A Later. My letter from Sir Donald Bradman to Sir Donald Bradman and his reply later. So I cherish that. And um, yeah, just for me, it probably just means I played a lot of first class cricket. And scored a lot of runs. Last year, we sadly lost arguably the greatest cricket of all time in, in Shane Warne. So growing up, he was one of my heroes. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him when, he, when you came to, to Cardiff. It was a pleasure meeting Shane then. What was he like as a not as a cricketer, because we all know how amazing cricketer he was. What was he like as a person? When when we were both 18 years old, we lived together. We lived at the we went to the um Australian Institute of Sport Cricket Academy. And we lived, our dwellings was a pub. We lived in a pub. And it was so much fun. And every night, Warner used to sit in the public bar. He used to have a cigarette in one hand. And a, maybe a little thing of beer in the other. And he used to bowl. He used to spin the legs, the, his leg spinner into the left pocket. He used to spin his wrong and or googly into the right pocket. He used to bowl his flipper back up and down the table. And that was Shane Warren. He'd do it like that was just him. Like a cigarette in one hand, a beer in the other hand, practicing his leg spin. But he was so caring. He was so kind. And he was so loyal. And it was a great shock when he passed away, you know, like it was a great, it was very, and actually the day before he died, Rod Marsh also died, another legend of Australian cricket, who had probably had more influence on my cricket career than any person in my life, Rod Marsh. So to lose those two friends and mentors and, you know, legends of Australian cricket in two days was it was really sad. Then, of course, we lost Andrew Simons, who was one of the great people of our time as well. So it was a really tough time in Australian cricket. But Warney, and I always say this as well, Shane Warne, not only he gave me so many highlights on the cricket field because we won. The best thing I ever did was play cricket with Shane Warne because we <laughs> won all the time. He was a genius. But he also gave me the highlight of my whole life because of Shane Warne. I got to hug Liz Hurley. <laughs> I got to hug Liz Hurley because Shane was engaged to Liz Hurley. Oh, man. And I hugged her. It was brilliant. And when I think about it, because of Warner, we got to meet rock stars. I mean, you got used to, we got to meet legends. 
because he was like a rock star himself. So Shane, I was with his, I was with his um, two daughters and his son and his ex-wife Simone just last week at the Coldplay concert. We had a great weekend together, um, but he's he's sadly missed because he was a you don't say legend or icon very often. He was certainly that. What is the one question that you would never answer? The one question I would never answer. There is no question I would never answer. You can ask me. People can ask me whatever they want. And that's often when I speak or I write, people go, I can't believe you're so honest. And I said, well, that's the only way, isn't it? I remember having, um, I'm not sure what football team you both barrack for, but I had lunch with Sir Alex Ferguson before the fourth test match at Old Trafford a couple of years ago. And the one thing Alex Ferguson said to me was, remember, truth works. Always tell the truth. And I thought that was so powerful. He, another thing Alex Ferguson taught me was that he said when they lost a game, Manchester, you know, when they lost a game, he got into the habit where he'd always go back into his office and ask the question, what could I have done better? What most people do when you lose is they point at everyone else, what everyone else could have done better. But he said, I always ask myself what I could have done better. I love that. So, Mason, you or your mates or your friends can ask me any question. There's none that I wouldn't answer for you. Brilliant. Well, we'll look forward to it. So moving on then to your retirement. And after you retired, you moved into coaching with Western Australia. How did you find the transition from player to coach? Well, one thing, nothing ever replaces playing. I'd say that for the first thing. The second thing is it was it was great to still be involved in the game. It was great to be able to share experiences that you'd learned from the game, um, but nothing replaces. And the other thing, as you keep moving up as a coach, when you become a head coach, often you, you stop doing what you love doing, and that's coaching people. Because especially in the Australian team, you spend more time managing so many different stakeholders that you get away from doing what you love, which is which is actually coaching and teaching and helping people. So, but um, look, I'm very fortunate. I've loved my time coaching. I met some great people. Are still in the game, but I would I'd say that nothing replaces playing. In 2010, it is right that you it applied applied to be hit become coach of Australia. You how was that? process for you and why do you think they didn't go for you at the time yeah it's a really good question mason thanks for asking and what i will say is that i did apply what happened is that the head coaching rocker and i don't literally only been but what but the reason i started coaching was that ricky ponting who was the captain and tim nielsen at the time was the coach i was still playing at somerset and they said when you retire at the end of the year why don't you come and join us in the Australian team as the as, as a batting mentor? And I didn't think too much of I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then sure enough, when I retired, I got a phone call the next day from Cricket Australia saying, do you want to come and coach for the Australian cricket team? So I did that. And I'd been doing it for about one year. And then the, the head coach job came up. And everybody's going, oh, you know, you should apply for it. So I did. But I was miles off. It, uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't get given the job back then. I probably wouldn't be talking to you today, Mason. I'd probably have died 
well a long time ago because um what happened i then went and um coached western australia for six or seven years and that was a brilliant apprenticeship and i always say to, to young people there is nothing like doing an apprenticeship or in whatever you do we all want to be the boss from day one but the apprenticeship is so important to learn all the skills so i did that through western australia and then i was lucky six or seven years later to get appointed. And I'm glad I didn't get appointed in the first case. Yeah. So as you mentioned, in 2018, you became coach of Australia in difficult circumstances. I don't know if you oh, agree. Yeah, after <laughs> after the, the sandpaper, the gate issue. Uh, look, talking about the sandpaper issue first, why, I know you weren't coach at the time, but why, what must have gone through the player's head to think, to do that and they would get away with it yeah look it's not it's really hard so i obviously wasn't there i was as shocked as everyone and in australia it was like it was one of the greatest controversies in australian history people the reaction was unbelievable and i actually talking to players at the time who were in south africa i don't think they realized at the moment how big it was back here but it was huge and, and one thing yeah and we always say Australians play hard, but you don't cheat. And we get taught that. We, we get brought up knowing you don't cheat. And, and the boys did, and they paid a really heavy price for it. You know, Steve Smith was, had one year ban, David Warner a year ban, Cameron Bancroft had a nine-month ban. We lost at the time. The chairman changed, the CEO changed, the high-performance manager changed, the head coach changed, so all the leadership. So... Um, Australian cricket reacted very um, sternly, and you know we we had a clean we had to have a clean start. And, and one thing I know is that at the very start, the new chairman and the um, CEO said, "We don't care if you if about winning and losing. We just want to get back Australian public, start respecting us again." And I said. I reckon I said every day of my time coaching behind closed doors and publicly, we're going to make Australians proud of this cricket team because we've, and that's what we did. And, and I believe you can have both. You can play well and be good people and play in the right spirit. So uh, hopefully we achieve that. Yeah, I definitely did. And what was, is it true that you picked Cameron Bancroft up at the airport and after that? And what was, what was that like? And what was that car journey like? No, that's right. I, we did. I mean, I'd, I'd known Cameron Bancroft since 16. And the, the sad thing about it was that you could line up a 1,022 year olds and he would have been the last person I would say would ever do that. And I remember, I remember talking to him and the, I asked him at the straight away, what happened? And he, when we first spoke on the phone in South Africa, he, he made up some story. And when we got to the, uh, back to the airport that day, he took me before we went out because there was obviously lots of media everywhere. We went out a little private um, exit and he took me into a little room in the, this VIP area of the airport and he said, and he got, you know, quite a most, said the, one of the worst things here, I didn't tell you the truth, coach. And that's a good lesson. You know, we go back to Alex Ferguson, truth works. So, but, you know, he's a terrific kid. He's, he's, um, like Steve Smith and David Warner have done, they've done their time. He's batting brilliantly now. He's done a lot of things to make up for the mistake he made, and and um, 
you know, I, I, I've got a lot of time and respect for Cameron Bancroft. How uh, you had a tough job for off picking Australia cricket up from a dog place. How did you try to to do that? And you, uh, and how do you change at the quarter? How do you change the culture? How do you change your culture? Yeah, that's a, another good question, Mason. And all culture is is behaviour. If you behave well, you've got a good culture. If you behave poorly, you've got a poor culture. So I put it all down to behaviour. So we just made sure that our behaviour, that one, the expectations from everyone was very clear of the behaviours we expected on and off the cricket field. And I go back to those make Australians proud. And I, I would say to the players, if you wake up every day and you make your grandparents, your parents, your brothers and sisters or your mates or your aunties and uncles, you, in your behaviours, you make them proud, everything will be okay. It's a really simple philosophy because they don't want to see you lose all the time. That won't make them proud. So you've still got to play well, but you've also got to behave well. And that's all, in my opinion, that's what culture is. And you've got to be on those behaviours every single day. And what a lot of people do, they look for the bad behaviours. But that's not necessarily the way to go either. You've got to, if someone behaves well, you've got to put your arm around and say, well done. That's the behaviour we're looking for. If they don't, sometimes it'll remind them that that's not the behaviour we're looking for. But you've got to also encourage the good behaviours. And what I've learned is the more you encourage the good behaviours, it's a much more powerful way of building a strong culture than always just looking for bad behaviours, which most organisations do. So we reward the good behaviours and um, reward people who are, you know, doing the right thing on and off the field. And generally, to me, that helps create a great environment to be a part of. What is your biggest weakness? I say coach and why what do you, do you do you, to try and improve it my biggest weakness as a coach is i when we lose i go very quiet and people have this some people react differently but i go i'm very i'm quite introverted you asked me a question before but you either have a night in or a night out and i said instantly i have a night in because i i like to be thinking and when we lose I go quiet and people think I'm grumpy or people think I'm hard to approach but it usually takes me I don't know sometimes one hour sometimes six hours sometimes a good night's sleep and then I'm back into it I'm like an energizer battery again but in those period when we lose I'm always thinking about ways we can do it better so but I'd go quiet and I'd say that's my biggest weakness and I'm very aware of it. so how do I improve that one I was aware of it I knew it was happening and it's over time, hopefully, I've got better at it. But we've all got weaknesses, no question about that. And that would be my biggest weakness. You called one of the players in your team a, quote, coward. Coward. For leaking information. Information. Information to the press. Wow. We, who were you talking about? And why did you call them a coward. One of the great things I've learned in life is I actually never said that. Okay. I didn't even, and if you, the way the media works today, like 
if you the the actual I did a podcast for a friend of mine and we laughed for an hour and 10 minutes. It was the funniest podcast of all time. It was leading up to last summer that uh, I was to start to do some commentary. And then it is impossible for anyone to put together that I called any of our players a coward. It, it would never happen. I'd never done it. I love my players. But that was the headline. And I said something five minutes before in a question and I said something five minutes later and they somehow intertwined it to have that headline, but it made a good headline and it made for, there was a bit of angst between the players for a few seconds until we talked about context and talked about the truth. Truth always works, um, but made a good, what I did say was that often you read in the newspaper, journalists write, a source says, a source says this, a source says, but they never put their name to it. So what I said was, in my opinion, sources the sources are like cowards because they're either got if they don't want to put their name to it well that's soft or weak and if they got something to say they should come and say it to people and they should be up front or they've got an agenda or they're trying to hurt someone so that's what i was saying but never ever about our players i never i never say that about our players i've got a great relationship despite what you read in the newspaper I, I still, in, I'm in still in touch with 98% of the players. I, I, you know, I love them. They're great, and they're doing a great job in the World Cup. We've got great memories together, and um, but the media has a way of uh, building good news stories. And then, as well, you were involved with the Australian Prime Amazon Prime documentary. How did you feel about that at the time, and having the cameras kind of everywhere you went and? people being able to see behind behind the scenes? It was really hard. I mean, it was perfect timing during COVID and a lot of people around the world watched it. So I was in London. I was in London in June and the amount of people would stop me on the streets. I love that document. Chris Martin from Coldplay and Phil, his manager, all they wanted to talk to me about last weekend at the Coldplay after the Coldplay was the Amazon documentary. <laughs> So it went brilliantly, but it's nerve-wracking. You imagine if a cameraman is is filming you 24 or every waking hour, he's filming what you're doing. And they did that for 18 months. So while um, the cameraman, Doco, we called him Doco because he's making a documentary. He's actually a stand-up comic. So every day he'd do the joke of the day for us in the Australian cricket team. How he had so many jokes, I've got no idea. <laughs> But he was a great bloke. We loved him. But the day he stopped filming was a huge relief, to be honest. And were you aware of it? Did you have to change your behaviour or were you the same Justin Lange you always are? Yeah, hopefully it came across that I was. Just, and, and I think that's what people love so much about the documentary, that we're, everyone was so authentic about it. And by the end of it, we didn't really know. A couple of times I had to say, oh, Doc, no, we're not filming this. Can you?" And he was so respectful. But overall, I'd like to think, I don't know any other way, actually. So people see the grumpiness, people see the happiness, people see the passion, people see all of it. That's just me. And um, hopefully that's how it's portrayed in the documentary. How yeah. important is honest? honesty? Honesty in a dressing room. Well, like I say, honesty to me is the number one value in life. It's so important. So 
and 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 honesty goes both ways. Is what what you learn as a head coach is you're going to have a lot of tough conversations. You're going to drop people. You're going to leave people out, and every, all the players think they should be playing, which is great. But what I've honest what I've learned is if you can look someone in the eyes and tell them the truth, then you can't go wrong. But the other side of it, like Alex Ferguson, you've also got to be very honest with yourself. So honesty works both ways, and it's the number one value for me in um, creating a strong environment. And then how has the changing room changed? So put yourself back to 1999 or whatever, when you were in the changing room as a, as a young man, to kind of when you were a coach, how has the dressing room evolved in that time? And Oh, it's so different. My gosh. Like when Honestly, Alan Border was my first captain. And I love Alan Border. He was my hero. He's my captain, but he was tough. He was tough, 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 as was David Boone. And you, you just sat there and you just listened and you just sat there. You didn't say a word and you just learned from watching what they great players did. And they, you know, they used to just, and, and it wasn't as professional back then, certainly in terms of money value, but it was just so different. Now today, it's they're very inclusive change rooms. Everyone, there seems to be very little hierarchy. Everyone just gets on. And, and that's, a, that's a really, I think that's uh, indicative of our society today, actually. So a changing room basically just um, mirrors what's happening in society at the time. So it was very different, but I was lucky to live through and still live in all these different eras and still be involved in the game. And then you were sacked or you left Australia, cricket Australia um, after four years in charge. You had just won the World Cup, just won the 2020 World Cup, number one team in the world. Why on earth would they suck you? I think we talked about before, there was this media storm and we see it all the time. I mean, and when you're in the, you're in the media storm, it's like literally standing in the middle of a bushfire and there's nothing you can do about it. And the more you talk, the fire just grows. And I think it gets to a point where it almost becomes untenable. Some of the things I read in the paper, but literally I, I could not believe what I was reading. But it just turns into a better story and Chinese whispers become a better story and a better story and a better story. And then by the end of it, you know, it was best for everyone that I moved on. So, um, but I had four great years there. We had great success. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of part and parcel, no matter how you look at it. If you want to live in the public eye, you want to coach the Australian cricket team, or you want to be a rock star, or you want to captain England um, in any code, that's great. But you've got to be ready because the storm or the bushfire is coming. And it's sad to say that, but look at anyone who really makes it to the top. There's very few who go out the Cinderella story. And it's part, there's a great friend of mine who's in the SAS, which is like the, I guess, like the Royal Marines. And he said to me years ago, Justin, most people can live the dream. Not many people can live the reality. So we all want to be the head coach. We all want to be the captain. We all want to be the CEO or we all want to be the headmaster or we all want to drive a Mercedes Benz or we all want to live in a you know mansion. We all want that. That's easy. We can dream about that. But the reality of that, what you've got to do to get it and the when you become a leader, the sacrifice and the discipline and the criticism 
and the dis disappointments and the hard work, man, it's not for the faint-hearted. Leadership is not for the faint-hearted, and that, that's okay. I wouldn't change it. Even though it was tough in the media, I wouldn't change it for the world. Would you ever go back, or would you ever coach a different country? No, I'm going to coach in the IPL this year. Uh, it's, uh, see, I'm doing so many. I'm After 30 years, I'm finally home. In the last two years I've been home, I see my kids every day. I have home-cooked meals most of the most nights. Um, I just love being back in my, at home. So the IPL is a 10 weeks away, not 10 months. When, my first year coaching Australia, I was away 300 days of the year. So it's a big sacrifice. So you never say never, but I'll, I'll get my um, – I'm really looking forward to coaching the IPL. I'm really looking forward to – coaching with the Lucknow Super Giants. It's going to be fun and it's a real challenge, but I can't see myself going on the road full-time again. So that's, that is our, well, our next question. So you've been appointed um, coach of the Lucknow Super Giants in the IPL, Indian Premier League, for next year. How are you feeling about that? And also, which player in world cricket would be your first pick to be on your side yeah. and why? I'm really excited about it. I've got the juices pumping again for coaching. I've had two years out, so I've got lots of energy for it. If I could have one player now in world cricket, I'd have Ben Stokes. I just love I mean, I was obviously there when he played that amazing innings in um, you know, a couple of years ago. I mean, that broke our heart. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But what people didn't realise was the day before, I think he bowled, a 10 or a 12 over spell to get two wickets, the end of play, which set them up to win that game as well. So it was just his batting, which everyone remembers, but his bowling the day before was unbelievable. So I just love his competitive spirit. I love his, the way he can bat and bowl and field. Uh, he's been a good captain for, for England and yeah, I just uh, really admire him. And we mentioned, I think before we even started recording about uh, Mark Wood, who, plays for the Lucknow Super Giants. Is he, I don't quite know how it works, obviously there's a draft. Is he, is he back with you or have you got to pick him again yeah. or he's back yeah, with you? Yeah, we retained him, we retained him this year. We On Sunday, we, we had to release our players or retain them. Mark Wood's been retained. I know he's been on your podcast before. He's so much fun. He bowls fast. Like he bowls fast, fast. <laughs> Not just fast, he's super quick. So to have him in the team and they tell me he's full of energy. I've only watched him play against us not for I'm looking forward to having him on my team not against playing against him yeah well, he was a brilliant character wasn't he Mason lots of funny stories which was yeah he's, he's a really really good good person right we've come into the end now Justin so what we like to do on our podcast is get our previous guest to think of a question to ask our next guest so okay. our previous guest was a former professional football player Sam Aston, who played for Sunderland and Wrexham and he asks, can you tell me about one time in your career where you felt most vulnerable? Well, I, I can answer that twice. The, the first time or the last time was that last six months of coaching Australia because I felt everything was out of my control. And that's a horror. Even though we were winning, we were winning everything. And I'd made some, you know, you, you always adapt, you always evolve. And I felt I'd never enjoyed coaching more. And yet I still got, you know, the, I finished as I did. So I was very vulnerable because so much was out of my control. Not on the field, 
not within the change room, but outside. So that was vulnerable. And the um, I think the most vulnerable, I, I felt vulnerable twice. I was dropped after five test matches and never thought I'd play again. But I used that vulnerability and that disappointment as fire. It was like fuel to just keep getting better and better and better. And then in 2001, during the Ashes, I got dropped for the first test. And I'm 31. We talked about it earlier in this interview. I'm gone. I'm never playing for again. And that's like the dream's over. But I just worked harder and harder. Um, I learned about what men don't do much is talk. And I didn't talk for about six weeks. I, even though I was training hard, I was getting worse and worse and worse. I was under so much pressure and I couldn't make any runs. And then I sat down with Steve Waugh, the captain. I sat down with Adam Gilchrist and the coach, John. I actually talked. And blokes, men don't talk enough. But when I did that, I went from feeling rock bottom to, oh, it was like the biggest relief. And then two weeks later, I opened the batting, got a bit of luck, scored 100, and then opened with my great mate, Maddie Hayden, for the rest of my career. So vulnerability, it hurts at the time, but it's really important for you to progress and develop and get better, I think. And then could you do the same for us, please, Justin? Can you think of a question for our next guest, who is a sports person? We're not going to tell you who they are, but I think any yeah. question hasn't got to be anything to do with sports. It can be anything you want. And my... my question to the next guest is what is your favorite quote or your favorite philosophy in life so mine is the pain the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment so i'm interested what their favorite quote or their favorite motto or their favorite mantra or their favorite philosophy is for how they live their life i would just like to say a big thank you Again, to everyone who listens to your podcast, we really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Please continue to lips, refuse, and pass all podcasts into your friends and family. Thank you so much for talking to the time to chat with us today justin we really enjoy speaking with you and it means so much to us as a score to be able to have any opportunity opportunity to speak with you you thank you thank you mason and i think one day you're going to be a great podcast presenter well done your communication was excellent and I'm very, very, very thankful to you and your friends to come up with such good questions and to invite me on your podcast. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can meet face-to-face -face one day, Mason. Hi, Justin. Yeah, Mason, thank you so much. Hopefully see you one day. Yes, bye. Okay, Mason. So Justin Langer has just gone. That was a really, really good, and he spoke for quite a long time as well, which was amazing. Mason, how do you feel that podcast went? Good. Good, did you enjoy it? Yes. Can you try your best to think of something that Justin said in the podcast to us? What did he talk about? Yeah. Can you think, what about um, the time he's talking about being coach? Yeah, it was a really difficult time for him, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So thank you very much to everyone who has listened to the episode today. Um, please continue to listen to the podcast and we will see you next week. Bye.
The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.